Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. One of the South African legends of paragliding is on the line with me. He is in the beautiful Drakensberg on the eastern side of South Africa. The father, the lover of sports and climbing mountains, uh, trying to achieve the seven summits in the world. He has different kinds of businesses. His main source of income being a construction business, which is, of course, completely failing in lockdown. And I have the great honor of speaking to a three-time ex-Alps participant, Pierre Carter. Hi, mate. How's it, Steph, man? How are you? Good to, good podcast uh, that you're doing. And uh, I really encouraged by your, yeah, using this sort of uh, thing. It really emboldens me to try to be more adventurous in this way. So well done. Well, thank you very, very much, Pierre. I really appreciate the compliment. I think I do this for sharing. I do this uh, because I realize that, well, I actually woke up in lockdown one day going, what the hell am I going to do for the next two weeks? And I thought, let's get the hell on with something that may leave a little bit of a history lesson, let's say, uh, for all sorts of pilots out there. And that's my idea to take a big uh, stewing pot and throw a whole lot of ideas in there, toss it around um, and see what kind of lentil curry comes out of it. Um, how are you doing today? Tell us what's going on in lockdown in Natal. Well, I'm in the, the Berg, as you said, in central Drakensberg, and it's, it's very quiet out here. I, I mean, my neighbor, my closest neighbor is about a kilometer away from me. We've seen maybe three people, four people in this whole time we've been here. And if we go down to the little town of Winterton, which is about half an hour's drive away, otherwise you pretty much see nobody. Eh? It's uh, very chilled and the weather has been fantastic. So, yeah. Can't complain. Better than being locked up at home in Joburg. I can well imagine that. You know, I obviously we've had the discussion again and again, and I, and I don't think this podcast is is um, necessary to rehash the same story. But um, obviously, um, the townships and lockdown, and even for normal people who are walking a dog, um, lots of lots of problems with that whole idea. So, let's move on here, though. You are a man who loves adventure. So you are in the area right now where the Exberg Challenge is. Um, that's a, an event that you've done for several years now. Um, the option of cycling, walking, running, of course, and walking, running, paragliding, or a multidiscipline event, which is very, very cool. Um, you've, you've done that for a while. It's unfortunate that at the last minute it had to actually be stopped. Many of the athletes were there already. Um, do you want to tell us about that, eh? Yeah, they, it's called the Exberg Challenge, and it, it came about as um, uh, part of my Exalps training. I thought, how, how can I get, uh, you know, when you're training and you're running and, and doing thousands of kilometers uh, in a month, you, it gets very boring when you're just doing it by yourself. So I thought, uh, let me try and spice it up, and I'll race my friends. Uh, the first one was from Ulufisok down to, to Underberg, and I got a bunch of mates who cycled and, and trail runners and said I'll, I'd race them down there. And uh, we put a couple of turn points, 
in the middle of nowhere and just said we have to go to those turn points and then carry on and we'll end on end at the golf course in, in Underberg. And that's how it began. I think that was about seven years ago or eight years ago. I can't remember. That was my second X Alps, which would have been 2011. Yeah, so eight years ago. Nine years ago now, yeah. It was great. Eh? We raced and the, the mountain bikers uh, won by miles because we didn't, I didn't make it hard enough for them. Obviously, they're traveling faster than when you're trying to carry a paraglider. You aren't doing much flying. And, uh, but it was great training. And it's, I, I think we covered, I covered about 600 kilometers in that uh, little training exercise. So it was fantastic. Eh? Oh, fantastic. And give us a timeline of your XOPS uh, experience. And uh, if you want to say something about it. Yeah, so XOPS, I started, I've been following it since it started in the early days and thought, oh, I, you know, they'll never accept me onto this, but let's give it a bash. And I sort of plucked up the courage and entered in 2009 was the first time I entered and they, they accepted me. So that was it, eh? just thrown into the deep end, you know, flown in the Alps and that, but you really need to do well in the XOPS, you have to go and live there for a year or two and actually fly the Alps, get to know the conditions well, and then you'll, you know, you'll actually do well in that race. You know, by, by well, I mean you'll be in the top 15, top 10. I just used to really just wing it, hey? You know, go there and uh, two weeks before, have a good. Plan, plan the route, but have, a good, uh, have good fun. And so it's a, it's a lovely race. It's, uh, I think it's probably getting more and more competitive now. But back in those days, it was really a lot of camaraderie and... Uh, um, good fun to go with the guys, yeah. Ah, fantastic. I'm a little critical of the uh, X-Alps, I have to say, and uh, as you may, may have mentioned, it's getting more competitive now. I think such a race, and if I speak to a couple of my mates who have done it, they are, some of them have mixed feelings about it, uh, basically, that it may be on the, uh, let's say, the wrong side of the line uh, with regards to risk. Uh, your comment on that? I, yeah, I just, I mean, I come from a, a mountaineering background, climbing background. So in my opinion, risk is, it's up to you. Uh, so depending on what I'm talking about there, but it's not, I think it's up to the individual. And when I did the X-Alps, I w- I'd never be as com- so competitive so as to push it. I'd always be on the hill with the wind. I'd always say to myself, would I fly in this if I was home uh, at my own little site in the berg? And if the answer was no, then I'd just carry on walking. So it was quite simple for me. And uh, a lot of the guys in those days had a similar attitude. Maybe now with it being so competitive and you've got lots of sponsorships, they might be pushing those envelopes. And then I guess it could push people into doing stupid things. So, yeah, um, if you're trying to make a living out of paragliding by keeping your sponsorships alive, that uh, could be pushing you a bit hard, eh? Mm-hmm. And there's that fine line again between it's a race, it's a competition. I mean, I'm extremely competitive when it comes to on the day I have to mate who's blazing to goal. Then I, on the other hand, will also take it real easy and I don't need to be on the podium or I'll give away any trophies that I get. So for me, it's, you know, uh, 50-50. But obviously, when you're in the rut of it and when you're in the heat of the moment and when you're like running up a bloody mountain, you've climbed up a thousand meters, you're fully motivated. It's day three of the Exalps and you're like, you see you've got a gap on other oaks and you get up to the mountain and the wind's blitzing. The whole big question is... Uh, do you do what they call in South Africa tata my chance or do you? Yeah, it, it, that, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I mean, I've 
walked down in the Exops, I must have walked off uh, 24,000 meter peaks. Just when you get up there, the conditions just aren't right. And in your mind, they're too dangerous. And you just have to, well, in my case, I just bit the bullet and walked off. But uh, I know a lot of people didn't. Uh, I know, if, you know, if I look at Ferdy, um, who's done the Exops, mm -hmm. he's still, I think, still carrying on doing it. His, his envelope is a lot, uh, lot bigger than mine. He would find conditions that I wouldn't fly in. And he got away with it you know, in, in some instances. Other instances, he got splashed down and ended up landing at the bottom of the valley, you know, having made no progress. But in one or two instances, he, he got away with it. So you have to ask yourself, is the risk big enough for that? You know, to me, in a race like that, it's all about enjoying it and, and having fun while you're doing it. And being absolutely terrified out of your mind when you're doing it is not fun to me. So uh, it's a personal choice, I believe, yeah. So you started flying in 1988 when those paragliders were something bordering on ugliest things you've ever checked in your life, um, <laughs> like a really disgusting fat girl in a bar. So uh, you have a life lesson for paraglider pilots out there. You once broke your femur when I asked you, uh, you know, any accidents to speak of. I assume you haven't had one. And he said, actually, said Pierre, um, I have had one. You broke a femur. When you told me you actually should not be here on this planet right now, um, give us a life lesson. Um, give us a lesson to stay alive in paragliding. I think for those starting out, you must have a, a slow learning curve. Um, even though in, in the you know when we started flying in '88, and I think paragliding had probably been around for maybe a year, uh, in the Alps for two years, everything was slow. You know, you you took. Only after 100 flights did you actually stay up in the air for like 10 minutes. You know, this is in South Africa. The curve was so slow then, you could actually progress with the gliders themselves. Nowadays, a, a beginner can come to school and they'll be rich soaring you know, on their first or second weekend on the dunes. It's, it's a total different experience and you can obviously you get cocky and you'll get yourself into, into trouble quicker um with the gliders these days so i think uh, if you are beginning just take it nice and slowly to begin with don't get yourself into trouble and then also in competitions that's when i hurt myself trying to push that envelope and uh, that was my life lesson is when in a competition just chill it's not all about uh, getting to the podium and i was pushing low and hard and i had a what is the glider in those days oh, it was a free x which is a bit of a machine in those um, to handle as well. Getting into a little bit of lee, and she spun, and I went in hard. I was only like uh, 15 meters up, 20 meters up on full bar, so it wasn't. <laughs> and luckily, I hit the only bush in uh, this. This is a portable in on that mountain range, and uh, the bush saved me. I think I would have been really broken if I hadn't hit that bush. Eh? I remember Paul Pallet. I don't know if any of you remember Paul Pallet. Yeah, he came and. Uh, Basically carried me off the mountain, put me back and carried me down now. Yeah. And then off I went to hospital. But yeah, it was a, a good lesson to learn. Yeah. And your bottom line or your one-liner for, for pilots uh, to walk away from this uh, incident? Push. Uh, geez, it's a difficult question. It's, it's, maybe, I mean, it's maybe the bottom line is progress slowly. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I'd, uh, yeah. I'd say yeah. They, yeah, like I just said before, they must just progress slowly. If you're beginning out there and you're learning, just keep it slow. Don't try and push it, because if you go looking for it, it will find you eventually. So yeah, no, it's going to bite you on the ass. That's for sure. Yeah.
Pierre, we're moving on. You are chasing seven summits. It's a mission you've made in your life. How long ago did you decide to do seven summits? You've done five out of the seven big summits in the world. And a little earlier today, you told me the expensive ones are the ones that are still waiting. And now the expensive ones I can probably imagine are bloody expensive being Everest and Vincent in the, on the South Pole. So, um, yeah, tell us about that. Eh? Yeah, I, I came up with the idea a long time ago, 19... 19- 98, I came up with the idea. I was invited on an Everest expedition uh, back then. Um, and I thought, well, hell, I'm, I'm going to try and fly off it. And then the expedition fell apart and the sponsor pulled out, etc. cetera. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to carry on with my little quest. And all these, all these mountains are expensive and traveling is expensive, especially with the South African Rand. Um, anyway, so I've chipped away at it slowly and uh, uh, I've... Uh, Watched Zeb and Claire then, then came up with the idea. I think we came up with the idea at similar times and they went ahead and did their, their summits and they were pretty much the first people to, to achieve it in tandem. And so I decided mm-hmm. to, to start and I started off with, uh, with Ilbris in Russia and I've done that three or four times now just for mates asking me to go back with them and take them up and fly off. And so I've done it in tandem as well. And the same with Kilimanjaro, which, uh, we did it in 2011 um, for the first time. And then, uh, um, yeah, as I said, we've just been chipping away at these mountains. Uh, and last year in 2018, December 2018 or year before, we did uh, the Australasian range, which was uh, Karsten's Pyramid, which is really amazing in Papua New Guinea. Uh, really a different place. Big, big jungle, you know, big... Uh, uh, and really steep, difficult, difficult uh, takeoffs where you you kind of you know once you just have to cock it up and you you could be that envelope at the end of on, on the edge of that uh, that envelope. The seven summits. I don't know if a lot of people know. There's a bit of a dispute between Australia being a continent or including Papua New Guinea. A lot of people say Papua New Guinea is part of the uh, the Asian plate and not uh, the Australian continent. And so anyway, I decided to go and do both, and I went and we also went down to Australia and hired a car and drove up to their little highest mountain, which is really just a little bump uh, called Kosciuszko. Um, I've forgotten the mountain range it's actually in. Anyway, we walked up there, it was great fun, and uh, ran off that little mountain. Um, I think it was uh, 2,000 meters high, above sea level, so it's really, I mean, there's places in Joburg that are higher than that, so it's not, uh, and it really was a little mountain the hill but to them it's their their highest place in australia and their little skiing village there etc um nice little town and then uh, we carried on down to uh, new zealand and a lot of people don't know that new zealand has been declared the eighth continent uh, so there are not seven continents anymore there are now eight continents in the world uh, what yeah this was this was declared about five years ago if you go onto my website, uh, my daughter who put my website together for me is a journalist and she sort of put the whole thing together and she did a write-up about it and she discovered that New Zealand was the eighth, had been declared the eighth continent that she, she found out uh, on some web page somewhere. So, of course, I then had to go and try and fly off the highest peak in uh, New Zealand. So we went to try and fly Mount Cook, but uh, the conditions just weren't uh, right for the, the two weeks that we were there. Yeah. 
I've heard that the weather is quite uh, fickle in uh, New Zealand for paragliding. I can't speak. I don't want to offend the uh, New Zealand pilots, but of course, uh, you know, <laughs> I've heard that uh, for paragliding, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, my, my brother does live there in Christchurch, so that, that does help. It's really just a plane ticket for me. But um, And I have flown. I've gone there uh, twice before, and I have had fantastic flying. So you have to wait around and wait for the weather to change and be, yeah, it's like, I guess, any big mountain that you do, you have to time the weather correctly. Um, and you, there's a lot of waiting around for it. So I have had good flying in New Zealand, I must say. But on that time that we were there, we were coming down and we only had a, the whole trip was like six weeks. And so you end up in your little box of two weeks to do this. And um, uh, the weather just never came right. And actually to climb the mountain, we never actually got uh, anywhere that was near the end of December, near the end of the, the climbing sort of season in Mount Cook, and uh, the glaciers were just too open. We couldn't actually even get onto the actual face of the mountain because the uh, the Bergschrund was just too wide. It was like six meters wide, so we couldn't actually <laughs> get across onto it to climb the damn thing. So, uh, and it was just yeah, ended up being too dangerous in the end. So we we backed off. But yeah, um, yeah. So as I was saying, the Bergschrund was like six meters wide we still couldn't climb the mountain uh, because of that and the weather was just terrible anyway so it didn't really matter the wind just howled for for the week and a half two weeks that we were there yeah so you will have essentially flown nine peaks out of seven in the official seven summits on seven forward slash eight continents you will have done nine of them when you finish your huge endeavors um good luck to you on that one tell us about kilimanjaro you have a business venture along with alistair and linda they are based in the uae but you meet people and glide guide and glide them off kilimanjaro tell us about that when did that start how did that start and you've obviously had massive challenges uh, political challenges uh, if i may or backhanding challenges or whatever that kind of story may entail tell us about it eh? yeah so kilimanjaro came about our little company um when we uh, linda my partner and alistair his wife um she's a specialist in tanzanian tourism if i may and used to work for a big company uh in that field uh and she uh obviously we, we've been friends because she's a, a what is a local south african paragliding uh lady herself so we i've known linda for years before that and uh, trying to fly up kilimanjaro i was inquiring at the time how to fly and she said well she's trying to inquire and actually do it correctly by going through the proper government channels uh, to try and get the permit to fly off this uh, mountain legally, because uh, beforehand you weren't allowed to. So Zeb and Claire and the, other, and the others who had actually done it before, had done it illegally and basically landed, packed their gliders up and run away. Uh, that said, it's not the nicest thing to do because the person that actually takes you up the mountain, the company, the ground handling crew, get into big flack uh -huh. about that and they end up actually being fined. Um, uh -huh. So... Linda said, no, she's going to do it the right way. And she knocked on doors. I think it took her about five years of knocking on doors. Um, and eventually she got it together and uh, they gave uh, her permission and she had to fill out paperwork like you can't believe. Uh, but she met in that process, she met all the right people and, uh, and is, is now known quite well for, 
for uh, all her hard work. And so she put together the first legal paragliding flight off Kilimanjaro in 2011, which uh, um, a bunch of us went and did. Um, how many not- exhibition, uh, expeditions, excuse me, how many expeditions have you guys uh, successfully accomplished um, off Kilimanjaro? Give us some kind of stats. How many have you attempted? How many have you done? Um, what is pe- What are people going to pay to come and draw with you guys? How long kind of time frame? Hit me with that stuff. Okay, so um, Kili takes, we've been going for three, only three years officially now. This is our fourth year and Corona put it into this, this year's uh, touring. But we've done um, four to five trips every year. Um, and they're mainly uh, New Zealand, Australian and European, uh, uh, European crowds that come out. Um, and we have between anything from, we've actually had couples from two to crowds of um, 12. We won't take more than more than 15. It just becomes a logistical nightmare. If it's 15 people, you can imagine trying to get 15 paragliders off at 6,000 meters when no one's you know, thinking that clearly. So we, we cut a, make a limit there just for safety reasons. Um, I find that already, as you say, I find that quite a, quite a sizable group is 15. Um, I would have thought you would have limited it at 8 or 10, but it's certainly not a criticism. You know what you're doing, evidently. Yeah, look, the takeoff up there does depend on the conditions, obviously. Um, I've been up there when the conditions have been like smooth as, as glass and you could have it's the size of a soccer field up there, so you could lay out 100 gliders if you wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you, all, you could all run off, but only, only twice have the conditions been beautiful like that. The other times they've been quite hairy takeoffs where only the very experienced have actually, you know, you can control That's their gliders because they have managed, because controlling a glider at 6,000 meters as opposed to sea level is, yeah, a totally different thing. It's a, Don't tell totally me I was last year and took off at the Igui du Midi with a uh, mentor that somebody lent me instead of my Enzo and uh, I have to frankly say I shat myself yeah they suddenly become even if it's a, a sort of a B glider it suddenly behaves like a D and you kind of <laughs> it's just the reaction time has to be so much quicker and, and the glider just behaves totally differently yeah mm. We'll have uh, Felix, Felix Rodriguez on a podcast in the next days. Um, he's a close friend of mine, actually. We share all sorts of great moments and memories and play chess together. Uh, he will tell us all about gliders acting like they shouldn't. That's for sure. Go on, Pierre. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that sounds that will be exciting. I can't wait for that to come out. The cost of it is between four and a half and five thousand dollars. Um, so it is expensive. It is expensive for the South African uh, market. And we are, we are going to try and put a static rate together for our, our South African friends. But there's a lot nice entailed one. into this. And that includes everything from your ground crew. You get fed. You get, I mean, we hold your hand pretty much all the way up the mountain. Um, we'd obviously try and get the conditions right for the, the two or three uh, attempts that you, you've got on the summit. And hope it does come together. But the flight down is absolutely amazing. You've got a 5,000 meter, I think it's the highest in the world, top to bottom of any mountain. Just over 5,000 meters. And you can literally glide, if you don't catch any thermals on the way, your, your glide down is like a, just over an hour. So, and you glide roughly 30, 40 kilometers. Yeah, just in one glide. So it's just, 
Do you use Sherpas? Who carries people's glider up there? Um, uh, do you limit people to a certain kilo- kilogram like the airline does that they allow to bring along? What if someone comes along and says, no, this is the glider I want to fly, and it's these like old cuckest, heaviest, yeah. rubbish thing? Um, and then the second question that goes with that is, what does your tandem kit weigh? Right, yeah, we do limit uh, weight because really you have to have a um, Sherpa or, or porter per per client. That's the way the government, that's why the cost is, is quite high because you can't carry your own kit there. You are obliged to, to use uh, porters and to use all the infrastructure that they provide. This is obviously the government's way of providing jobs. When you go up the mountain, you can't have your glider kit can't weigh more than 15 kilos. And then we generally split that up so that one porter is carrying your harness and your reserve and the other one a glider. So they're carrying roughly eight kilos each for you on the way up. Uh, you can elect to carry your own kit up. So when I do my seven summits, I carry my own kit. I refuse anyone else to carry it. All the mountains I've done, I've always carried my own kit up. But on Kelly now, obviously, I've done it a couple of times now. It's, uh, yeah, I don't. I just hand it to a porter. It's just a lot easier. My tandem kit at the moment, I need to upgrade it and get uh, one of the single skin tandems. Uh, but I've got a special one made that uh, Andre de Paul made for me, six kilos. Um, so it is, it is a light uh, tandem kit, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, great. I mean, I was speaking to James, an Englishman who comes regularly to South Africa. His, uh, his surname evades me, but um, he has a super light uh, tandem kit, and I think it was just under six kilograms, or even bordering on five kilograms, which is really amazing, you know, including a reserve, which is quite something. So that's how light we can go these days, guys. It's really, really crazy. Um, what did your X-Alps uh, equipment weigh up here? Uh, the first time I did it, uh, in 2009, I had about 12, 13 kilos. Um, and then, uh, th- that was basically just, yeah, that was a big learning curve for me. Um, I then got it down to my last one I did, I got it down to seven kilos. Uh, yeah, they're right down to like six and a half, five, five and a half kilos. I mean, it's amazing, hey? You have told me about the scariest moment of your life. Please tell me what that's all about. Oh, it's got nothing to do with climbing. or yeah, There are lots of scary moments in climbing and mountaineering and flying. Uh, but probably the most terrifying moment was um, uh, the birth of my daughter. And uh, I was at the sharp end. And because I was, I was a paramedic in the army, and I wanted to actually catch my own daughter, I think I was watching her crown and come out was the scariest moment yeah, of my life. <laughs> Us as men, we come out of uh, the vagina and for the rest of the life, all we try and do is get straight back in there. Nice one, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too true, too true. Now, you also have a really, really funny moment to tell us. Fire away. Right, yeah, the funniest moment is actually during Red Bull. It, well, it wasn't funny at the time, but it, afterwards, when the adrenaline had sort of stopped uh, rushing around, it was, it was actually hilarious. And this was my first exalt in 2009. And I was thermaling up, it was somewhere around the Glochner, yes. I'm not quite sure what happened. I, I, I got it anyway, I got like a, a half a wing collapse and uh, came out the back of a the thermal. 
but I was, I was quite low. I got high up at sort of three and a half thousand meters, but low against the mountain. Ended up going in hard onto this uh, granite slope. It's sort of, I guess it must have been 45, 50 degree piece of granite going down this, this mountain. And I sat there and the glider got, luckily for me, got tangled around some, some loose rocks and debris that was lying there in a little bush. And I sat there hanging sort of, Realizing, shit, okay, I'm in a precarious position here. I don't want to go sliding off. I'm sliding down this sort of, you know, 500-meter uh, piece of granite. I looked around and said, shit, my feet, I'm, my feet where are my shoes? I'm, I'm barefoot. You know, my shoes had disappeared. And I couldn't find these things. I was looking around, and, and you stand, and you got all the adrenaline going through you. And then I realized, shit, my toe's nearly cut off. And my toe's hanging on its, uh, my big toe was hanging on its, uh, uh, on its like tendon, I said, "Jesus, this is not good." And it's, you know, after a while, you realise that there's blood coming out, and, and I was still looking around for my shoes. I couldn't find my shoes, and nothing was broken. I could move around; my feet were okay. And then, after I've sort of stabilised myself, so I, and I luckily we sort of carry tape and stuff with you when you're doing exhales, and I put some duct tape around my big toe, and I realised that my shoes are around my knees, and. <laughs> It's really funny afterwards, you think about it, and you think, looking at this and your shoes, what had happened, I hit the ground, the slope so hard, my feet had punched through the front of my running shoes, and my running shoes had ended up on my knees. It was unbelievable. It was the funniest thing afterwards uh, that, that James and I just couldn't stop laughing about it. The first and only time that I've actually dropped a motorcycle, I was going around a corner uh, with my 50cc when I was 16 years old and a car kind of cut me off and I had to drop the bike. And uh, although I was full of roasties and feeling absolutely shit, eh, you stand up and it's just like, where's my bike? Is it okay? Is it okay? Not, I could die here, but where are my shoes? <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. And then you find them and you're looking for them and you suddenly realize, shit, they're at, on my knees. How did they get there? And then you sort of piece it together and you realize your feet actually punched through the front of your running shoes. It was, you know, if I'd, I was wearing boots, I probably would have broken my legs, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, it was... Uh, <laughs> yes. It was really How did you get away? How did you launch? Um, it must have been bloody painful to tape up your toe like that and then still walk and kind of tape up your shoes. And... No, there's so much adrenaline. It, 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 yeah, it lasted a good, I think it lasted probably about 20 minutes had adrenaline. It was, you know, eventually you start shaking a little bit, you know. But you, in that time, you've found your shoes, you put them back on, you duct tape them because you've got holes in the front of them now. Uh, and you sort of gather your glider together and gingerly move off to, to where you can uh, relaunch. And I actually phoned James and said, James, we've got a problem here. I don't think I can walk now because I need stitches. I need my toes to sort of stitch back on again. He said, no problem, you'll organize a race doctor. And uh, uh, I said, I'm just going to fly off and carry on flying while uh, I've still got the adrenaline and no pains, you know, kicking in badly yet. That's what we did. Mm -hmm. And I kept flying down the valley and eventually I landed and James had organized the doctor and he came and stitched my toe back on and uh, he then gave me a shot. He said, okay, I'm not really allowed to do this, but you, you're going to be in a lot of pain later on. I'm going to give you this injection. And he injected both legs. And kind of numbed them from the knee down. And uh, it was so good, I could actually carry on. And I carried on running for the rest of the, you know, in those days, the, the race was 24 hours. So it didn't stop. It didn't have a rest period. So I carried on through the night. 
and I couldn't feel my legs, but eventually it wore off after about uh, eight hours, and then the pain just came, and I uh, that I had to actually pull out the race. It was too much. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was 2009 uh, end of the race for you is when the pain came back. But listen, yes. you please must tell me what that stuff is. I'd really like to try it once, you know, for the rest of my body. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I must actually find out what, they, what, what he gave me. I don't know. But it was it really worked well. Yeah. So we're talking about James Braid. Was he your second all through um, X-Helps experiences? Yes. Yeah. Jimmy was fantastic. Uh, he was a good, uh, good, solid rock to come home to every night. And uh, he... You know, we, we both weren't experienced paragliding pilots in terms of ALP standards. We got lost many times. And uh, in those days, GPSs, 2009, GPSs weren't fantastic then. Uh, and we still used actual hard maps. And, uh, you know, nowadays uh, you can get onto all these different apps that will tell you where to go and how to do it and the quickest way, et cetera. So, yeah, things have changed back uh, since those days. So, But it was good fun. And James was solid. Eh? He was he, you, you've said it twice now, uh, so I'm starting to wonder because a few months ago you said uh, James Braid was a solid rock to go to bed uh, to every night. And <laughs> you wonder about what you two are. James, yeah. You can ask him to comment on that, yeah. <laughs> Listen, what happens in the Excel stays in the Excel, my friend. Yeah, you, you've also been a, a rock there. You, we passed through a couple of... Every time you've been there through town, uh, I think it was, what's the name of it? Uh, Selin? Selin? That's in right. I was, working at, I was working at Blue Sky Paragliding. And for me, it was absolutely a pleasure to say, hey, guys, this is the way to a shower. And what can I get you? Uh, anything you need? And then James would say, like, listen, dude, my hands are full. Could you just pop in the supermarket, get me this, this? I said, please, WhatsApp me a list. And with pleasure. So for me, it was an absolute pleasure to give you guys a tag team. The only thing I'm really sorry about here is that I couldn't say to you, um, listen, here's the shower, here's the warm bed for half an hour, and one of the girls is coming over for um, a quick little bit of, uh, let's leave that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are so tired during X-Alps, it wouldn't, yeah, 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 let's leave it. But uh, the shower, I did have a shower, you did give me a shower once, and you fed me a whole bowl of pasta and then sent me on my way, so it was fantastic, but yeah. Well, it was really a pleasure watching your back. I have to say that was great. And on that note, <laughs> I think we can wrap it up. Any last things you would like to say, Pierre? Fly safe and remember that the sky is always open. Wonderful. You broke up there for a moment. So Pierre Carter, all the way direct from the Drakensberg, the beautiful place, the Exberg Challenge. Check that out. Check out their venture to Kilimanjaro. They're the only and really top class company that are going to glide you guide you and glide you off the very top of Kilimanjaro. Heaven and Earth is the name of your company, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, yeah between heavenandearth.com. Uh, and we don't do just Kilimanjaro. We do other mountains as well. And we do uh, adventure travel, basically. Uh, so we do mountain biking up Kili as well and uh, hiking and climbing. Between Heaven and Earth, check it out. Pierre Carter's his name. It's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. So speak to you soon again, Pierre. Ciao, mate. Likewise, Steph. Thanks very much. Eh? Cheers. Yeah, what a legend, a guy who doesn't seem to show any fear whatsoever. 
man, his kahunas are much, much bigger than mine. But great, eh? Fantastic. Uh, really nice chatting with him. And uh, what a pleasure to hear him uh, come out with some really great stories like that. I mean, that story with the shoes above, above the knees there because he had punched through them and one toe was hanging. I think I just completely freak out. But yeah, really, really nice one. Guys, look him up. Have a good time. And oh yes, I forgot our little joke for the day. Today's little joke is, what is the difference between light, that's right, the opposite of dark, and hard, the opposite of soft? So what's the difference between light and hard? And the answer is, a man can fall asleep with the light on. Have a nice afternoon, everybody. And remember, if you've had a good time here and you've really wanted to uh, pay back, uh, we say a dollar a podcast, which goes directly to some, some Zimbabweans who work for me, and I put it directly in their hand. You're not paying their salary. You are helping them in a way that they really, really need.